Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll right. never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? Oh, right. Well, your parents are too? Hey, good morning out there, Chicagoland and Milwaukee too. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting live on WLCB 101.5 FM. I'm your host, Doris Nagel, and I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself, and I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of different startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting practice, and I've also helped or started at least nine different startups, and I wish I could say they've all been madly successful, but that wouldn't be true. And I've made plenty of mistakes along the way. My passion is to share what I've learned and to find other experts to help entrepreneurs. So I welcome your comments, suggestions. If you have a topic you'd like to hear about or struggling with a particular issue, you want to be a guest or you know somebody who'd be a great guest, contact me at dnagel at lakesradio.org. The show will be better for your input. Now, with that, I would like to introduce our guest for today. Our topic is business valuation. And while that might not sound terribly sexy, it's pretty darn important. And with me today, live in the studio, to talk about that is Heather Grove, the Managing Director of Caliper Advisors, where she focuses on measuring, enhancing, and monetizing the value of privately held companies. She has over 15 years' experience conducting valuation analyses of businesses and various types of stock and partnership interests for all sorts of reasons, mergers, divestitures, acquisitions, and the like, even gift tax planning, being something you might not think about. Prior to joining Caliber Advisors, she was Director of Corporate Finance for a venture-backed technology company. She began her career as an analyst in the Valuation Services Group at Ibbotson Associates. Caliber Advisors is a leading independent provider of expert valuation and economic consulting services. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sure we'll find out very shortly. And their clients are all over the map in terms of size, from startups to multi-billion dollar publicly traded corporations. So with that, Heather... Thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start out by just talking about what we mean by valuation. It's one of those topics, like I said, that I think when I mention it, most business people, certainly entrepreneurs, their eyes kind of glaze over like, ooh, I don't know about that. What do you mean when you talk about business valuation? Well, these businesses are privately held, right? So it's not like a stock that's traded on the NASDAQ or the NYSE where you can just go and sell it on an open market. Right. So you have to figure out how to peg a value to it. What's the right. company, what's the company worth? What's the value of their interest? And it could be the value of the stock. It could be a debt instrument. It could be intellectual property. So anything that kind of creates value for the owner. Yeah, that is a tough thing. 
you and I were talking in the in the lobby before the show about particularly startups, very difficult to figure out what the value is. I, I worked not too long ago with a startup and the owner was convinced the valuation was $20 million. Um, <laughs> and he was trying to raise money based on that. And, you know, I don't know, was it worth $20 million? I External people, some of the investors that he talked to, didn't seem to think so. So Right. Yeah, so how how do we figure out what a business is worth? Well, in so, in something like that too, right? We have all the theory on how we how we figure out what a, a company is worth, especially a privately held company. So there's a couple key things that you look at, right? Cash flow is obviously key. So we'd look at historical earnings of a company to kind of get a sense for what does the future look like by looking at that and looking at the you know the industry and expectations, et cetera, how they have forecasted before in relation to what they're pro- projecting. You also look at, it's kind of like comps in real estate. You'd look at other, you know, other businesses in the same industry. What did they sell for in relation to their revenue, in relation to their cash flow, and hope to apply it to your subject company? Now that's tough because again, they're private companies. You don't always have data. But no, and if you ask the entrepreneur, they'll say their company is entirely unique and they're really aren't they any all are they all are and I hear it you know a, a few times a week for sure and I mean one of the things I, I have to do kind of regularly is tell people that their baby's ugly you know because <laughs> they think you know my company's worth fifty million well it's not and here but here's why and then you know here's why we came up with what we did and now here are the things that you can do to increase the value. So, so while we look at cash flow, we also look at, you know, private transactions. And then sometimes, and I'll say, I, I hardly ever do this with my smaller privately held companies, but you would also, in theory, you'd also look at another form of the market approach, which is where we look at publicly traded companies and, you know, how they trade in relation to their revenue and their cash flow. And it's tricky, right? Cause they're so much bigger, more diversified, et cetera. But depending on the industry, I mean, sometimes if you're talking, software as a service or insurance brokerage or something, you know, a little more uniform, you can kind of get a good guide. And at least it's a, it's a sanity check on right. the results of the valuation right. you used under, you know, you did right. under other methods. Wow. We've covered a lot of ground with that answer. So maybe, maybe we should take a couple steps back and unpeel a few sure. pieces of all, mm-hmm. all those nuggets that you, <laughs> that you just shared. First, why would you ever want to have valuation done of your company. It's not like most companies are buying and selling shares of their company every day. So right. what, why and when would you want to have a valuation? That's a done? good question. So, I mean, and you do see this a, a lot of times, you know, you have a, a family owned business that's you know passed through generations. They're not taking outside financing from a bank. They haven't really had any reason to have it valued. So then sometimes the first time that someone ever comes into value is when an owner passes away or they want to do some gift tax planning. You know, they want to gift shares to younger generation. Usually there's a trigger. Someone's getting divorced. You want to buy out a partner. You need to figure out what the company's worth for life insurance for the key men. You need to put a value to that. So those would be kind of some of the main triggers. Again, financing would be another one. Yeah. And- so, so that's an interesting point you raised. I think a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs I've worked with think that they can just transfer shares for a penny. <laughs> you know? The IRS would probably disagree. You know, it's like, who knows what the value is? So we'll just say it's a penny and here you go, here's a hundred shares. Right. 
I mean, is that... Yeah, they could have a, some problems that's later. That's a problem. Well, no. Yeah, and so, and, and so that's... I, I mean, that's something that... It, it's a big reason why now we're getting a lot of calls because now what's, what's happening is you have this, you know, this demographic shift, right? With people retiring now right. and, you know, looking to either they have to sell their businesses outside. We're seeing a lot more where the next generation is not necessarily interested in continuing on the business. And so now these owners have to look for outside buyers. So they have to kind of figure out, you know, what it's worth before they put it on the market. But they also have to figure out what it's worth to figure out, how, like, how does their long-term retirement plan look? Like, what do they expect the proceeds to be? Get all their advisors involved, like the wealth managers, their accountant, et cetera, because wow. it's not just the overall price of the business. How is it structured? What are you going to get after tax? Because mm-hmm. it's one thing to say, I'm going to sell for $20 million. Right. You're not going to end up with $20 million in your pocket. So, and then figuring out, you know, what do I want to do after I sell the business? Do these proceeds give me what I need to do, you know, to accomplish my goals financially? Well, so I guess that's a another way of saying if you have an ongoing business, once you're past the very initial startup phase, trying to transfer shares for a penny might not be a very good no, idea. No, that's a very bad idea. <laughs> because the business has some value and you have, so whatever that value is divided by the number of shares is what you ought to be selling the shares for or transferring them. Correct. Right? Correct. I mean, there's thing, there are things like discounts for lack of control and lack of marketability when you're talking about non-controlling blocks of stock that apply. This, and it's beyond the scope of what we're you know we're oh, talking yeah, about yeah, here. But, I, you, but you're, you're but, right. I mean, but um, you're aspect. talking you're talking potentially. You know, you could have a pro rata value of a share of a controlling interest, you know, in a company. And then when you're talking about discounting shares to the next generation, that could be discounted by forty percent. So. That's a, so that's a big deal. But that's also why if you want to take those kind of discounts, you have to go and get a proper valuation that's going to pass, you know, IRS scrutiny, et cetera. So that's when you would do kind of a full-blown right. analysis. Right, because if you're transferring shares, then there may be income tax or... Yeah, there's potentially tax gift tax consequences. Yeah. And so you need to kind of make sure that you button that up there. Now, if you're doing something where it's an owner that's... And I love to see this. They're ahead of it. They think, you know, not just... I need to sell tomorrow or I want to sell next week. They are thinking, I have a three, five year plan where I want to sell the business. So now what do I need to do to get ready? What's my data point now? What is it worth today? And then you also figure out, you know, what's it worth today? What are kind of the risks? What are the things that they should kind of tighten up in order to increase the value? And then where do they want it to be in five years? What do they need for their overall plan or desired exit, well, et cetera? As you say, you love to see those kind of businesses, but I think the statistics, uh, although this is not a discussion really about succession planning, it's really shocking how few businesses really take that approach. You know, that that's unfortunate because they leave a lot of money on the table. Oh, abs- absolutely. I mean, I could tell you horror stories where even when an owner of a pretty substantial business has a great team of advisors, has the wealth manager involved, gets us involved, gets the accountant involved, et cetera, and then just drags their feet and doesn't do anything on figuring out what the succession plan is. And then what happens is they get sick, they get injured, or they pass away. And then the widow is stuck with a business that is dramatically decreased in value and can't necessarily sell it or has to sell it, you know, in a fire sale. Or gets involved in the business. I I was talking (laughs) at a networking event not too long ago about a body shop repair and paint place. 
and the owner suddenly passed away and of course his shares went to through inheritance to his wife who then decided she should get involved <laughs> and pretty much i mean can i guess what happened yeah it wasn't, it wasn't a good ending unfortunately yeah so. well it, it's but again good planning and you know being smart about it ahead of time makes all the difference and even you know we had an estate that we worked on where it was a family company, but one, you know, one child was totally involved in it. The other two weren't. And this one even put money into it because it wasn't, you know, doing as well, but wanted, you know, dad's company to succeed. But when he passed away, he left the company in equal shares to each, yeah, you know where this is going, to each child. Well, then it turned into litigation. No one, you know, no one speaks. They, yeah. It just... And there wasn't, the sad thing is, the company wasn't doing well. It wasn't really, I had to go through and kind of prove to every sibling, this is really what it's worth. There's not a lot here, what you're going for. But it just destroyed their family. And all it just took was some good planning years before to avoid these kind of outcomes. But it's just unfortunate. And it, you know, when you see somebody and they're just, they're not taking the steps. And then they're going to, they're going to have a really bad outcome. Well, so, you know, valuation strikes me as kind of one subset of that. I mean, uh, because you're talking about really facing the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to guess that uh, most business owners have some idea in their head of what their business is worth. Now, whether that's an accurate <laughs> yes, idea they, yes. or not, right. I, I'm going to guess most business people would say, well, my business is worth about whatever. And in their mind, they have some mm-hmm. assumptions, and maybe they've even, you know, built a model. So what are some of the most common mistakes you see business owners make with their assumptions? You know, they think it's worth $20 million, but your exercise says, no, it's worth five. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, business owners, most of us are optimistic by nature. We never do this crazy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things you see, and you see this with startups a lot too, is when they they peg to a number or a pricing multiple that they see in the news that was based on a much larger entity or just a completely different entity, and so then they think that it applies to you know to their company, which is much smaller in a completely different or more risky you know industry. It just doesn't you know just doesn't add up. A lot of times they have numbers, but they're not really based on. You know, they understand how to operate their business intimately, but then how does that translate to value? Now, one of the most rewarding things that happens is that even when we value a company, it's for compliance, say it's just for tax purposes, and you're sitting across from a business owner and you're explaining to them how you came up with the value and you see the light bulb go off where all of a sudden they realize, you know, they understand what the value drivers are and it helps shape their thinking. So if I change X, then I'm going to increase value this much. And they kind of make the connection then between operations and, and valuation. But there's a couple key things that I see people don't think about a lot. And they come up in almost every private company valuation that we do. So in, in smaller private companies, there are a few things. So one, you see a lot of situations where an owner is not taking any compensation or they're taking you know, they're taking distributions, but they're not paying themselves properly. So sometimes they're paying too much, but most of the time they're paying too little. And so the way you have to look at it is, is if 
I'm the buyer of this company. I have to come in. Who would I have to employ to run it, to right. replace them? And what would I have to pay them in a market salary? Right. And so if they're not paying themselves enough, you right. have to adjust the cash flow down for right. that. Right. So if they're yeah. only taking 50000 yeah, but you would have to pay somebody 200000 with benefits to, Correct. to run the company, then... You have to build that into the to, yeah. the to the cash flow model. So sometimes they say, you know, my earnings are two hundred thousand, and so my company is two hundred thousand times a multiple. And you say, whoa, but you're not paying market salary. So your earnings, actually, if your salary was two fifty, you're actually losing money, right? So it's actually not. So that's a big one. That's good. You're actually not making what you think you're going to make, or what you should be making, kind of right. normalized. So officer compensation is a big one. The other big one, and once you explain this next one to owners, they're more than happy to tell you uh, every dollar that this you know applies to. But a lot of things you see are uh, personal expenses or non-operating expenses. So kids on the payroll who don't, you know, right, who who don't work or a wife on the payroll, all kinds of vacations and stuff run through the business. So what's the funniest thing you've ever seen run through a business? Uh... A pheasant farm a in what? Arizona. Pheasant farm. Yes. They had a, they had a pheasant farm in Arizona. It's clearly a non-operating asset, but they said they had it, you know, so that they could take people and entertain. So it was for business <laughs> development. But. So, and the IRS thought that was okay? Or? I don't know if the, I, you know, I, we were in this, we were involved in this. I think this was for a, an acquisition. Yeah, we were actually, we were on the buyer side yeah. and we came in and we looked at the books and I was like, what is, What's this? And they even had someone on the payroll that was responsible for, for the, managing the for ma- managing the pheasant farm. So I'm like, we're gonna we're gonna take that out of the equation. Well, I, my, my <laughs> funniest story is two horses in a in a large horse trailer. Uh, yeah, because the owner's wife was very into horses and breeding horses, and as it happens, jumping horses. And so the horses got, somehow got on the payroll, you know, as part of the. I guess they deducted the depreciation. That's really funny. With with a expensive horse, but I've seen all kinds of things, and so and and this is one thing: you go through the financials of a smaller company, and they're you know they're not as clean. There's a lot of stuff in there. One of the big things you see with the smallest companies, they treat it just like you know one and the same, like one pot with their personal assets. And it's like you have to treat it like a separate, you know, like a separate entity and clean and arm's length. So yeah, getting so those yeah. personal loans to oh, key uh, employees to help them out, which is a wonderful and thing. And that's, that's you know, and that's okay. They're on the books and they're documented. I mean, that's not that doesn't that's not so bad. It's running all your groceries through, Ooh. and you're you know all all the okay. luxurious giving, vacations. Giving our listeners, great ideas. Yeah, uh, like no, I, I mean, I've seen I've seen everything. So you know, so you have compensation, right? So under market compensation, which will shift, you know, kind of the, the measure that they're they're applying a multiple to. You have you know these personal expenses, and we could go on and on about that. But uh, the other one that you see that we usually have to adjust for is sometimes you have a company, and they will so the shareholders say, it's, and we see this a lot in family-owned businesses, right? So you have all the siblings; they own pieces of the company. Then they also own the facility that the company operates in in a separate entity. And so they may or may not be paying market rent to this entity. And so sometimes they're paying a lot more to the entity, 
right? To the, that owns the real estate. And so I have to look at it as a buyer. Like if I came in, what would I have to pay an independent third party to lease this space? And so we would have to adjust that cash flow as well. So usually you see some kind of play that they're running, they're pulling too much money out of the company, push it into another family entity, or sometimes they're not paying any rent. So you look at their financials. Why, why isn't there any rent? Well, we own it in another, you know, in another company. Well, I'm going to need to impute some rent expense. So right. if you had, going back to our example, if right. you had $200,000 in cash flow, right. but I figure out that your lease is actually, just say it's 300000 a right. year, right. well, there's the difference. Right. Now all of a sudden your business is right. worth so very it's, much. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Very, very, very interesting. So when are the most common times that businesses would come to you for evaluation? So a lot of times it's a trigger, right? Kind of like I said, you know, you have, you want to buy out a partner, you want to bring in new partners, right? right? As part of kind of your, your overall plan, right. you're getting divorced, someone passes away, you're looking to gift shares to next generation, God forbid litigation, yeah. uh, financing, you know, you need outside, outside financing. You're looking yeah, for investors or you need bank financing. Yeah, you need to document it that way. That's a big one, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's interesting how, as we were talking about earlier, how your understanding of what an objective, methodical evaluation of your business is can really affect whether you get funding or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a company that I recently worked with, the owner was convinced it was worth $20 million. And unfortunately, the investor groups that he talked to said, and maybe three to five. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a big disconnect, right? That's a huge disconnect. And and so not only will you not get the price you want, you may not get a deal at all. And I think in your the situation you were talking about, they didn't no, they get didn't. any funding. They didn't. So the, the big thing is when you're... When you're a startup, and especially if this is your first startup, right? You you know you're not a serial where you've had you know multiple exits or even one exit, successful exit before that you can kind of show. So when you're looking at a startup, you don't have prior experience, you don't have any traction yet, right? Because it's it's new. So right. you may have some revenue, but you probably aren't cash flow positive yet, right? right? And so all an inv- a potential investor has to look at. It's basically, you know, the quality of the management team. I mean, it's the biggest thing. They have to feel comfortable. So then if they feel like the, you know, the, the owner, the founder has unrealistic right. ideas about, ex, you know, about valuation expectations, it kind of says, well, this is kind of a, a sign of their overall thought process and their overall judgment. And this is basically the most we have to go on because we have to trust that they're going to execute, execute the plan and carry through. It's it's really it's really a bad problem. It is a bad problem, and I think that the importance of a great management team is is even more important than a lot of business people realize. You know, one of our guests recently basically said that when they saw a great management team come to them, sometimes they would say, "You know, we don't like your idea, but we've got we have exactly. some other great ideas." We think you are such a strong management team that we'd like you to take one of these other ideas and run with it. Exactly. And that just absolutely blows entrepreneurs away because usually one of two things has happened. Either people come with an idea of some great new thing that if you build it, they will come, and they've attached themselves to this idea. Mm-hmm. So to hear, you know, to hear an experienced investor say, yeah, I don't know 
oh, you know, you've got a great team, but I think your idea is hogwash. It just kind of explodes their mind. Yeah. It's I, the most important thing, and especially for a startup. But again, it's it doesn't matter if it's a startup, established company. It's all about risk and return. And the biggest the biggest risk in private companies is the management team. And a lot of times with the small companies, you have one guy. You have the owner or operator who's responsible for everything. And while that's great and we applaud the entrepreneurial effort, the key man risk there is so high. And so that's why another thing when you're you're kind of looking to lessen the risk of your company, increase the value, you really have to make sure that it's not all hinged on one person. You know, one person's not responsible for all the sales. If something happens to that person, the business can continue. It really, ideally, the business needs to be able to operate without the owner to maximize the value. Yeah, that's an amazing observation that I hope business owners listening are, are really processing. I think the other lesson that Kind of the corollary of that is to, when you're starting a business, think carefully about who you're starting it with. Oh my goodness. Because, yeah. you know, yes. I mean, it's really easy to kind of fall into that, hey, let's get together and that's a neat idea, but, but wow, it may have some really unintended consequences. Oh, uh, right? we could talk about this for hours. I spend a lot of my time on, you know, shareholder buyouts. And I, I used to think that this only came up a lot when, you know, when the economy was down and companies weren't doing well. And now we have companies that are, you know, having their best year ever. And we have 50-50 shareholders that are splitting up just because they have different visions, et cetera. So it's very important to make sure that it's not just a handshake and everything's great in the beginning, right? It's, we've documented this, we have a procedure for exit, et cetera. And it's just, it's just unfortunate. So. Well, Heather, we're going to continue that discussion. I think the idea of allowing the business to run without you is one that's a foreign concept to a lot of owners. And I want to pick up on that thread. But for now, we need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. We are back live with the Savvy Entrepreneur with Doris Nagel and our guest today, Heather Grove from Caliber Advisors, talking about business valuation. So, Heather, we were talking before the break about allowing the business to run without you and connecting that back to valuation, that that is one of the ways to really improve the value of your business. Talk a little bit more about that and maybe some of the some of the stories that that you've experienced that work either to the good or to the bad and so when you're you know just like valuing any asset so it's all about risk and return and so a huge risk factor for a privately held business is owner dependence and so while it's great that an owner has built this company and is res- responsible for the sales and the marketing is the face of the business it's also very risky because if anything happens to this person, then there's a detriment to the to the business. So, well, but but let's talk about that. Yeah, that's really a hard thing for some business people. Oh, right? it's huge. Because, yeah, because that maybe is the whole reason the the ego boost or the the day to day interactions and pressing the flesh with customers maybe. The whole reason they do this, right? Right. No, and that's exactly right. And that'll get to something when we're talking about when they, they're actually ready to sell. There's kind of a psychological part of this, you know, walking away, the difficulty there, yeah. and some things I've seen with owners almost sabotaging their own deals because they start to 
to freak out when they have to realize they're they're going to be stepping away from this. But you know, when I'm coming in, if I'm coming in to buy a company, you know, and you know, I look at their historical cash flows, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what do I expect to generate from this asset moving forward? I have to feel pretty comfortable, right, that those cash flows are actually going to be realized. And most of the time, you need the owner to stay on for a few years to kind of transition, right? right? To right. transition the customers, et cetera. Because right. a, a big misconception that I get a lot, the owners think they're going to sell and basically hand over the keys and walk away oh, on day one. I, I, and I, I, I see that all the time and I have to tell them, no, it's not going to be that way. You know, there's a tra- there's a transition period and here's why. And you actually want to do that because... Otherwise you, you lose the value. Ex- exactly. They're going to, they'll cut it down so, so much or maybe not even to do the deal if you're not a part of it. So you need to kind of transition. But it's just like anything else. If you're the only person responsible for something and so, you know, and something happens, you've got to kind of diversify. It's just like in your portfolio, uh, you know, with your, your retirement portfolio, right? You're going to put everything in one stock. You're not going to do that, right? Because if anything happens to this one company, there's your retirement fund. And so you spread it out. And so it's the same thing kind of with the management team, sharing responsibilities, you know, et cetera. So very, a very key aspect. And I'd say when we're looking at private companies and you're, you're looking at the risk factors that you would, you know, discount a, a company for, that's probably one of the biggest ones. Well, I think that's especially true in a service business. I actually was talking to someone a few years back about buying their business or buying into the business. It was just one guy and he had this neat consulting, he called it a franchise, but the problem is is that he had never taken the time to put together all of the tools. Like he had, you know, in his mind, this whole set of toolkits that he would pull with clients and training sessions and train the trainer things, but he had never organized any of it. And I was like, well, this is, this is fabulous stuff. You know, he's like, well, look at all this great stuff I have. And I said, well, right, but I don't know this business. I don't know how to find clients in this business. You're the one. Cause he kept saying, well, I've made a very nice income with this. And so my business, you know, ought to be worth this. You, you ought to be willing to pay this. And I said, okay, but what's your involvement going to be? He's like, I want out it. I'm, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I want out. I tried to explain to him. I said, look, here I am. I'm coming in. I don't know your business. I don't have the connections with your clients. I don't know inside your mind what this huge repository of various Mm -hmm. tools and presentations and neat selling things that you do. So how in the world am I ever supposed to just step into your shoes without some kind of runway. And, right. Um, and that would be difficult even if you knew the industry inside right. and out. You still, right, you need that transition right. uh, with the clients. There's a lot to unpack there, right? Because there's a couple different things where, you know, one of the things when you're talking about value is putting the processes in place and having documentation, having things tight, right? And if, right. He, if, if he had done that and was able to prove that, right. and then you could see how it translates into revenue and cash flow, et cetera, Absolutely. there's value there. But absent that, if it's just in someone's head and then it's risky, it's in one man's head. And if something happens to him or he's not around, then... Well, and he even said, well, you can call me anytime. But the problem was is that I found when I even was trying to call him to talk about questions I had, he was already off doing something else. He was, you know, right. basically so, had no time. He had checked out. 
Yeah. You know, so... So you made a good decision, not... <laughs> I made a good decision, but, you know, it made me sad because it was one of those opportunities where I saw up close and personal. We talk theoretically about how people leave money on the table, mm-hmm. but here was a here's a, an example that I could see and touch where I looked at it and I thought, you know, if this guy, if he just let me work with him for a year or two, we could put together... The processes, you know, map those out, map all the collateral, the different kinds of tools Mm -hmm. and trainings and other kinds of intellectual property that he had, assessments and things like that. And we could turn it into almost a franchise Mm -hmm. where... Yeah, you saw the potential, but it just... Where it wouldn't even... I could then step into whatever part that I wanted, but... But frankly, I could come up with, in my mind, I could see a process where I could franchise it and we could license it to other people, maybe in other different Mm -hmm. kinds of areas. And it would be an amazing revenue stream for this guy, you know, for, you know, Mm -hmm. and he said, well, I don't really care about the money. And I thought, but how can you, (laughs) you spent your whole life doing that. How could you not want to... Leave the best legacy you can, but you know, it, it it was just interesting to see it up close and personal, right? Because I think what you're saying is that a lot of business owners wait until they are really done, and then mm-hmm. they think it's all going to be done, but right? No, no, they it's it, it's getting better. You know, now if you're talking to business owners that are in their 30s and 40s, there's a different, you know, they kind of always want, even if they don't have a trigger, like they say, you know, maybe I might want to sell in five years or maybe I'm going to continue to operate. They still want the data point and want to understand where they are as far as valuation, you know, it's kind of a baseline. So then they can create value along the way. So it's kind of different. You know, I, before I used to see family owned businesses that would just, you know, hold the company and, and transfer it to next generation and it probably never valued the company. And then all of a sudden would go, all right, maybe we want to sell or we have to sell. I mean, yeah. God, when you get those calls and we have to sell now, you know, the owner's sick or something I, like that. And it just, it's heartbreaking because I, I look at it and go, we need two years to clean this company, you know, to clean this company up. Right, much, and, less, much less maybe looking at ways to build the value of it. Well, right. right. Well, that's it. And so instead they're on the downwards, they're on the downward slide, you know, because maybe the owner's deteriorating and the business is suffering. And so it, so it's bad for a, number of, for a number of reasons. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about valuation conceptually and in the context of growing and managing your business in a sound way. Let's talk maybe, uh, I'll spend a few minutes talking about the mechanics of evaluation. Okay. It's not a very sexy topic, but, uh, well, for you it probably is. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but how long does a evaluation typically take and how much does it cost? I could kind of go through just real quick kind of how we do it, yeah. what we do, and then depending, you know, it depends on the purpose too, right? If you're doing something, like for example, if you were looking to buy a company and you said, this is the price that they're they're looking for. Can you take a look and see if it's in the realm of reasonableness, right? So that's like kind of a quick calculation, a little bit of a little bit of research, right, to kind of give you that data point, which is very different than if you're saying, I have this company and I want to, you know, I want to gift shares to a, a child 
and it's going to need to survive IRS scrutiny, et cetera, right? Then that's more of a, so right, so you have kind of a calculation on one side, and then you have the full-blown report that would survive IRS, SEC, litigation, scrutiny. Right. Uh, so on the other hand, so you can kind of talk about that. So obviously the calculation is, is pretty pretty easy. But no matter what, I mean, you're looking at, you know, so first you're going to, you're going to gather some data. You're going to get the client's financial statements, tax returns, major contracts. So leases, supplier agreements, anything contractual, right? That kind of ties them into anything, either spending money or collecting money. So any customer contracts, a lot of times we don't see that, right? They're not contract related businesses. You know, you'll do your general industry research, economic research, Pull transactions on companies that are, you know, have sold in similar industries or the same industry. Look at public comps, et cetera. So we typically do kind of a preliminary financial analysis. And then what we want to do is sit down with management and basically ask them about the things we saw in the financials. You know, what happened with this expense? What are there any non-recurring or non-operating expenses? You know, are you running a pheasant farm through your, <laughs> through your business? You know, anything that That's we, classic. do you have any kind of, you know, labor issues we need to talk about? What do you, you know, so we talk about the history of the business and then their expectations for the future. We like to talk about project, you know, projected cash flow. A lot of times with private companies, they're not regularly, you know, especially smaller ones, regularly preparing budgets and projections, right? right? It's, it's rare that I see them. So you're kind of helping them, you know, through that process, we're kind of trying to understand, you know, if I'm coming in to buy this asset, what's the expected cash flow I expect to receive. And then after that, you can kind of come up with a a preliminary kind of value indication. And again, you can come up with a hundred percent for the, you know, for the equity, depending on your purpose. If I'm looking to buy or sell this company, or, you know, if you're looking to gift or you have uh, a buy shareholder buy-in or buy-out and you need to look at a minority interest, then we kind of go through the discount analysis and all that. Depending on the purpose, document in a report. So if you're talking a full-blown valuation, you know, say we're doing for tax compliance purposes, you know, it's a three, four-week process probably. And it could be generally, and again, this is the big caveat, an operating entity, simple capital structure, you know, no other sub entities, you know, right. other businesses we have to look at, you know, pretty clean, you know, is usually like an eight to 10 K thing, you know, and then obviously if you do more limited scope, you kind of throttle back from that. Yeah. And then the calculation is just something we would typically do, you know, on an hourly basis in advisory. Going back to a question, I think we started to talk about earlier. What are the biggest factors that affect the valuation? So, and I suppose that yeah. depends on the industry, et cetera, but, but, well, but so, sort of, there are some, there are some big buckets that will apply to every single company. Cause again, it's all about risk and return, just like every asset, right? So it, it boils down to, you know, what are, what are the key things we look at, you know, every aspect of the company's operations, right? And their management team, that's usually the big one in these, in these companies, key man risk. That's usually a big one. Sometimes we see customer concentration. You know, where 70% of their sales come from Amazon. That's a problem because if anything happens with the relationship with Amazon, that's going to be detrimental to the business. So key, you know, so key man customer concentration are two big ones that we see. I would say just general quality of financial information processes, et cetera, meaning how buttoned, you know, how buttoned down are they, are they generally speaking? You know, if I'm looking at it from a buyer's perspective and I come in and I ask for financial information and they give it to me and it's, it's tight and it's clean as opposed to it takes them four weeks to get it to me. And then I get some 
you know, garbage, garbage that I can't decipher as a potential buyer, I'm not feeling really good about their financials and not feeling really good about the company, you know, the company as a whole. It's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people maybe think about getting evaluation done as this sort of a, a service, like, you know, I'm going to have my tax return prepared by H&R Block. The way you describe it really, or and maybe there are valuation companies that, that sort of approach it that way, but I think the way you're describing it, you're really a business consultant. Because, Absolutely. Because I'm envisioning that you have conversations, so let's take the management team, for example, and the fact that you want a strong management team. You need to then have conversations with the management and say, great if it's a fabulous team. And you can say, hey, this is one of your real assets. Maybe you're not paying this guy or this woman that, that as much as you should. You might mm-hmm. want to think about that because, right. because those people are pretty critical for your business and they're real assets. But I'm sure equally there are difficult conversations. Cousin Frank is not really pulling his weight. Everybody knows it. Right. If you're going to sell this business, you're going to need to do something about this. Those are hard conversations. Right. No, those those are hard conversations. You know, getting back to something that you you touched on, which I think is really key, and I'm so passionate about this. I think too often people think, you know, valuation is just some, you know, they, they have to get it for some trigger. Say that their bank says they have right. to get it or they have to do it for tax purposes. It's kind of like, oh, it's a pain. We got to pay $10,000 to do this. And, and the mistake. And, and can't I get one for five? Oh, or, or, or an online calculator for $250. Right. And no, not even the same thing at all. <laughs> but I, I feel super passionate about this. And, and I know, and I've been told by, people that I work with, you know, attorneys that, you know, I work with and bankers, et cetera, that, you know, there are competitors that do this. So basically you just kind of produce it. And then, you know, the client just puts it in a drawer, you know, files it with the turn and puts it in a drawer. And that is a mistake because even if you have to value this for compliance purposes, you have a treasure trove of information now. What are the risks in the business? What are the issues? Cause we went through every single piece of it. And now learn from it, use it as a tool for the future. So you've had to go through the whole process. So they came back and said, wow, you know, we're, we're, get, we're kind of dinging you a little bit because of your customer concentration. And then I've had clients that have done this and said, now we're going to fix it. And so then they come back a few years later and they need to value it for the bank again, or they need to value it for another purpose. And they've, they've fixed that. And so then we can kind of reduce the risk premium that we add to that company, which therefore increases their value. So again, risk and return. So if you reduce the risk, one, you increase the chance of doing a deal and you increase the price because the lower the risk, the greater. Right. So if you have a management team that's solid and is not dependent on one single person, less risk. Exactly. You yeah, looking have, at you have a, yeah. a nice big, you know, a diverse group of customers that's not concentrated, you've mitigated risk. You exactly. Know? And that but that's what it's about. So look at every factor that way. And so you have two companies, same revenue, same profitability, everything, but one has a really solid management team and one has has one guy. All things being equal, right? right. The company with the more, more diversified management team is worth more. You have the same set of facts. And you have one has 80% of their business from Amazon and one has a diversified client base. 
guess which company is worth more. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. That makes uh, total business sense. And yet I think somehow a lot of people's minds are affected by these unicorns that you oh, right. read about in the news. <laughs> yes. Like, you got to have some real disrupting kind of idea for it to be, and then it's worth a lot. Otherwise, not so much. Those are probably really the exceptions, right? They're, they're they absolutely are. For a reason. They absolutely are. I love when you, someone sits down and, and it used to be we're the Uber for, the Uber for this. Yeah. And then, you know, and then that changed a little bit. Well, but we're still losing money, so I don't well, know if that's so good. No, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I think the beautiful thing is, and I think operators of private companies get this, but you look at these companies and, and I just, I love the companies that we work with, but they're, they're not sexy businesses. You know, they're making some small part that, you know, they, they sell a NASA and they, sell, you know, nothing sexy or they're making equipment for bridge building. Yeah. But these companies are fundamental to the growth right. of the economy. And, and kick and out a ton of cash flow and employ yeah. a ton of people. And then there's the ripple effect, right, on the supply chain and Absolutely. all of that. So it's it's really a neat thing. And so the companies that you, you see, uh, you know, on TV or you read about in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, who that's wants not, to read about widgets, right? That's just But that's it. It's not story. sexy, but I think it's beautiful. And they're all just flying under the radar and, and you know, building cool things and and, and employing creating, a lot of people and yeah. creating wealth for their families Absolutely. and then giving it back in the communities. And so, Absolutely. yeah, so. Well, you know, we didn't talk a lot about you. I mean, I gave you a quick introduction, <laughs> but I'm curious, how did you get involved in this, this whole aspect of the business? What drew you to it? Oh, into valuation? Yeah. It was a complete accident. So going back, people think this is crazy, but when I was in seventh grade, Seventh grade. Yeah, seventh grade. I don't even know what I was doing. I was picking my nose. No, seventh grade. I wanted to be a, a corporate securities attorney, and I was oh like, "That is goodness. what I'm going to do." Well, my, and my cousin was a, a partner in a big law firm, and I didn't know just what a, I didn't a really, know what a corporate securities lawyer was. So this is, I don't think I even knew when I was a senior <laughs> in high school. Well, I really loved law, and I really loved finance, and then I had this great role model, and so. Everything that I did was built towards I was going to do some kind of business law. And so yeah. then, you know, I majored in accounting and finance and all with the idea that I was going to go to law school, but I was going to have this great financial background that was going to help That's me when plan. I practiced. And then, so I went to undergrad at Indiana and oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> right. I, I think you seem like a very intelligent uh, That's right. I guess, I guess this interview's that. over now. <laughs> um, and so I, at one point I, you know, I got to know my investments professor really well and he suggested that, you know, I had decided that I was going to take a few years off before I went to law school, make a little bit of money of my own. And so I was going to, you know, interview for a job and he suggested that I go speak with Ibbotson Associates that he knew you know, Roger Ibbotson from University of Chicago and had, you know, I think he wrote a white paper with them, et cetera. And I went and interviewed there. Still had no idea what I would possibly be doing because it was, they talk to you about auditing, accounting, banking, et cetera, but no one talked about valuation, litigation support, et cetera. And so, you know, I started seeing Ibbotson pop up, our textbooks, and I went to interview there. Somehow I got hired. And my my first job basically was working with Roger Ibbotson 
on all of his securities litigation matters. Wow. And so, you know, I got to pour through the other side's depositions, re-engineer their models, prepare testimony, all this kind of stuff. And it was amazing. And it was, but it was, I never knew it was a job before. And it was yeah. the perfect blend of finance and law. And so then I never. Without having to go. Yeah. And then I, I never school. went to law school. And, and so then I, my whole career, I started out doing all litigation. So valuation related litigation for several years. And then I really wanted to shift into the transaction side. And so that's kind of how that happened. And then so now, and especially because of the market the way it is, most of my practice now is focused on buying and selling companies or navigating shareholder buy-ins and buy-outs like we discussed. Fabulous. So so what do you enjoy most about your job before we sign off here? Just about out of time. Oh, I, I mean, I love my job, but I love working with entrepreneurs, business owners that are just, you know, killing it every day and building. Again, they're not sexy businesses, but they're just working hard and building great businesses. I get to be, you know, as opposed to when I started out, I was working on with big public companies. I'm really hands-on. I get to advise on all aspects of the business. I, I get to help them with other people in my, you know, in my network. It's very and real. So, it's not I mean, theoretical it's fun. at all. It's yeah. just, I mean, every single day is fun. I get to see how things are made and just, again, work with really interesting people, you know, in my, in my network and, and the business owners. So. And I'm sure watch them grow, which is really... It's super It's super rewarding to be able to play even a small part in their success. Fantastic. Well, Heather, thank you so much you. for being on the show today. It was really great having you on the Savvy Entrepreneur. Just a ton of wonderful tips and insights that uh, I hope our listeners have really enjoyed. So that is our show for this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again, especially to our studio guest, Heather Grove, from Caliber Advisors. You can find more helpful information and resources on my law website, which is forsythialaw.com, or my consulting site, globalocityservices.com. There's a library of blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources there for businesses at all different stages. Finally, don't forget to email me with suggested topics, challenges, possible guests, or just to shoot the breeze. I'd love to hear from you. Dnagel at lakesradio.org. Be sure to join us next Saturday when our guest will be Mark Goodman, the director of SCORE Illinois. Some of you may recall our recent chat on the show with Bo Steiner, the Illinois director of the SBA, and he mentioned it on that show, the small army of SCORE advisors that SBA sponsors. So it's only fitting, right, that we talk in more detail about SCORE and the many free resources and help that they offer to small businesses. So join us next Saturday, but until then, folks, happy entrepreneurship.